Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidmann and I am the host of this episode. Today, I'm, I'm happy to be joined by Lucius Gaviola, a moral psychologist. He is a senior research fellow at Oxford University and a research associate at Harvard University. Hi, Lucius. Hello, Rebecca. I'm really looking forward to having an interesting discussion with you. Thank you. Me too. So you have a lot of different research interests, including effective altruism, utilitarianism, and people's views on animals. Let's start with effective altruism. Can you define that term? Tell us a little bit of what altruism is and also how you became interested in studying altruism and effective altruism. Yes. So effective altruism is a relatively recent idea. It's a philosophy and a social movement. And the central question that effective altruism asks is the following. How can we do the most good in the world? Or more specifically, how can we use the limited resources that we are willing to invest for altruistic purposes, such as our time or our money, in the most effective way to help to improve as many lives as much as possible? So that's the key question. And I think it's an important question and an interesting question. It's interesting from a philosophical point of view, from the point of view of our personal lives, you know, because it very much depends on who you are and what opportunities you have and what resources you have and what skills and preferences you have, you know, to figure out how you can do the most good. And then it's, of course, interesting psychologically. And I'm happy to tell you a bit more about the psychology of effective altruism. But first, I want to just make it a bit more concrete by providing an example. So the most obvious domain to apply effective altruism is charitable giving. So people give a lot to charity. They're quite generous. They're quite altruistic, which is nice. But according to effective altruism, it's not enough to just give, but you also have to really figure out where you should give. Where should you give in order to help the most? Which charities are the most effective? And the reason this is so important is because it turns out that charities differ very widely in their cost effectiveness, in the amount of good that they can do per dollar. So like, you know, the amount of suffering they can reduce for you know, as many individuals as much as possible. So according to experts, the most effective charities are hundreds of times more effective than typical charities. So if you want to do the most good, it's really, really important to choose very wisely and to use reason and evidence to figure out which charities are most effective and to listen to experts. So for example, let's say you want to help blind people And let's say you can choose between two charities. The first charity trains guide dogs in the US, which is a really worthy cause, right? Because then these guide dogs can help guide blind people. But it turns out that this is really expensive. It costs about $50,000 to train a single guide dog. Instead, you could donate to another charity that conducts cheap surgeries that prevent trachoma. Trachoma is an eye disease that can cause blindness. And there are millions of people in poor countries in Africa, for example, who have that and who go blind. And it turns out uh, it costs only about $50 to prevent someone from going blind in the first place. So as you can see, if let's say you want to donate $1,000 and you can choose between these two charities, you can literally help hundreds of times as many people if you give to this second charity. So this is, this is effective altruism. And what made you be interested in studying effective altruism? It was, I think it's more than 10 years ago when I became interested in that topic because You know, I was interested in moral philosophy and I read a lot of philosophy and I had a lot of discussions with my colleagues and my friends. And it just seemed like a sensible thing to do. And I, so I was very interested in it personally. And then I, of course, was very interested in it from a psychological point of view. And in my research, together with my colleagues, we, we investigate the psychology of effective altruism. And there are really two main research questions here. The first one is, 
why don't people give effectively? Because most people don't give, you know, exclusively to these most effective charities. And then second, what can we do to encourage more effective giving based on these psychological insights? So I can tell you a bit more about both both of these questions. And at first, I want to also say that this is really collaborative work. So I work together with many colleagues. In particular, I want to highlight Stefan Schubert is a close collaborator. And with him, we actually just finished writing a book called Effective Altruism and the Human Mind, which will be published at Oxford University Press next year. So this really summarizes all of that work. And then I also want to mention Nadira Faber, my PhD supervisor, and Josh Green, my postdoc supervisor. And with those and with other people, we, we did all of that research. So, okay, why don't people give effectively? First, it's just important to say that effective altruism, even though it may sound sensible to some listeners in the abstract, it can be really counterintuitive in practice. So it's really not an intuitive approach to altruism. Humans in general are not intuitive effective altruism. It doesn't come natural to us. There are individual differences. For some people, it's much more intuitive than for others. But on average, for most people, it's quite counterintuitive. And therefore, it's not the case that there's a single reason, there's not a single psychological obstacle that explains why people generally are not effective altruists. Instead, there are many different psychological obstacles that prevent effective giving. And we don't have time to get into the details to discuss all of them. But broadly, you know, we can classify all of these psychological obstacles to effective giving into two categories. There are epistemic obstacles and motivational obstacles. So in other words, sometimes people just don't know how to give effectively and sometimes they just don't want to give effectively. So for example, we find in our research that most people don't know that charities differ so widely in their effectiveness and that therefore it is so important to choose very carefully. Most people think that the most effective charities are only a little bit, maybe factor 1.5 times more effective than typical charities. But according to experts, they're hundreds of times more effective. So people don't know about that. People don't know which charities, according to experts, are the most effective charities. People also have a range of misconceptions specifically about effectiveness in the charity context. So they, for example, don't know exactly what cost effectiveness is, that this is not the same thing as overhead ratio, so the amount of money going into administration costs. It's something else. They don't really know how to measure it. How can you quantify, you know, like well-being or something abstract like that? How can you compare effectiveness across different charities and even across different causes? So they just lack the information to have these misconceptions. And of course, we can't blame them. I also didn't know about this before I discovered effective altruism. So now you might wonder, okay, well, if people just don't have this information, we should just provide them with this information. We have to run a big information campaign and then they know about it and then they give effectively. Now, unfortunately, this wouldn't work. So it is the case, and we find this in our study, that if you provide people with all the information, on average, they give a bit more effectively, but the majority of people still don't give to the most effective charities. So why is that? The answer is, well, people just care about other things too. They don't just care about effectiveness. They have other motivations. In particular, when people give, they usually want to give with their heart. You know, people want to give to charities they have an emotional connection to, charities they find personally meaningful. In fact, you know, emotions and empathy in particular are the very motivations which typically um, motivate people to be altruistic in the first place. And of course, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. We know, I mean, we have known that for decades that empathy can be an initiator of altruism. Now, that's the helpful aspect of empathy and of emotions. But unfortunately, emotions in the context of charitable giving also have downside. And this is that the very emotions that can trigger altruism in the first place can then be an obstacle to giving in an effective way. And there are two aspects of emotions in the context of 
giving that uh, or sort of limitations. There are two limitations. And I want to quickly mention these. And in fact, Paul Bloom, the psychologist Paul Bloom, he discusses this very eloquently in his book called Against Empathy, which is a very provocative title. So I'm not against empathy, but it's true. I think that there are some limitations of empathy. And the first limitation is that empathy or emotions more generally in the context of charitable giving, they don't reach into the distance. So we you know, are motivated and, and care about individuals who are close to us. And there are different dimensions of distance. You know, there's temporal distance, spatial distance, biological distance, social distance. And we care about victims and individuals and charities that focus on such proximate individuals. So let's say there's a charity that helps individuals in your local community. You're really motivated to help to donate to this charity. Or let's say if there's a charity you have volunteered for in the past because you have this connection. Or you know, let's say you have a grandparent who has a guide dog then of course you really care about this guide dog charity, even if you know that there's this other charity that can help much more. So this is the first limitation. And it's a limitation because, well, unfortunately, we live in a world where often the most effective ways to help others is by helping distant individuals, such as people who live far away in a distant country, or maybe even future generations, or just people or even animals, you know, who are like feel distant to us. So this is the first limitation. The second limitation is that emotions don't scale linearly with the number of victims. And this is what psychologists call scope insensitivity. So if you donate to a charity and you can save one life, you feel really good about it. You get this warm, fuzzy feeling that behavioral economists call warm glow. But warm glow is not a good proxy for effectiveness because, yeah, as I said, it doesn't scale with the numbers. So if you can save 100 lives, you don't feel 100 times better. It feels almost equally good. So that's a big obstacle because it doesn't incentivize people to give to these very most effective charities. So these are some of the reasons why people don't give effectively. Super interesting. Thank you so much. Do you study people who are already altruistic and try to find out why they're not effectively altruistic? Or is it also the case that people who usually don't donate get excited about effective altruism? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm interested in all of these questions. In most of the studies that we do, we just ask the general population and some of those people might be altruistic and some of these people might be less altruistic. And then we just ask them questions such as, you know, where would you give if you had to give and how much do you give? So I'm, I'm interested in both, but there is already a lot of research on altruism in general. There's a lot of research, you know, like pro-sociality, generosity, altruism. This is all very relevant, but this research is mostly about the amount of giving. How much do people give? When do they give? How can we make them give more and so on? And really what I'm interested in is this the second question of when people have decided to be altruistic, how do they now decide how to allocate these altruistic resources, you know, and why don't they give to the most effective charities? In fact, I think that this is perhaps even more important from the point of view of, you know, having a big impact because, you know, if you encourage people to give twice as much, which is huge, right? If they donate twice as much, you can double the social impact. But if you can encourage someone to give a little bit more effectively, you may increase the impact by, you know, a factor 100 or so. And it may be much more, much easier also psychologically to give a little bit more effectively than to give like 10 times more. This brings me to your donation platform that you have co-created, the Giving Multiplier. Can you tell me more about what it is and how people, especially during the season of giving, how people can use it? Yes, sure. So Giving Multiplier is an online donation platform that encourages donors to give more effectively. And it's a platform that is the result of an academic research project that I 
did together with Josh Green, a professor at Harvard. In this platform, we apply techniques that we have tested and developed in our studies to encourage more effective giving. So I'd like to tell you a bit more about these techniques. In particular, the most important technique that we apply, we call donation bundling. So let me explain the, the rationale behind this donation bundling technique. So we know that people have this preference to give with their hearts. People want to give with their emotions. They want to give to a charity that they really, really care about. That's what motivates altruism in the first place. And it's important not, not to undermine that very motivator of altruism in the first place. So we also found that people do actually care about effectiveness as well. It's not that they don't care about effectiveness at all. They do care about it. It's just that they have these two different motivations. They want to give with their heart and they want to give with their head. <laughs> and now the problem is that unfortunately there's often a conflict between these two motivations because the very most effective charities usually are not the charities that are most emotionally appealing and vice versa. The charities that people care most about are not necessarily the most effective charities. So what do you do? Well, you could do a compromise solution, which is how well you just split your donation. So this is what we call donation bundling. It's a super straightforward technique. We call it bundling because we bundle these two charities together. So people are just encouraged to donate to both. So let me explain the experiment we did here. It's really straightforward. So we ask participants, tell us what is your favorite charity? It can be any charity in the world, the one that you care most about. Tell us the name and the website of this charity. And then we tell people, okay, this charity is called Deworm the World. It's one of the most effective charities in the world, according to experts. Experts, for example, at GiveWell, GiveWell.org. This is an independent charity evaluator, and they evaluate charities according to their cost effectiveness. We provide some information about this charity, Deworm the World. What they do is they help children or people in Africa who have parasitic worms in their stomachs. It causes these bloated stomachs that we sometimes see on, on the photos, and then they can't go to school. It's really, really bad. And it turns out it's very cheap. It costs 66 cents to deworm a child and to you know alleviate it from its suffering and allow it to go to school again. And so it's incredibly cost effective. So we present that charity to people too. And then we tell them, okay, here are a hundred dollars. You can donate it or you can keep it. If you donate it, you can tell us where you want to donate it. You can choose binary question, your favorite charity or this effective charity that you've never heard about before, but it's really effective. It's probably not very emotionally appealing. So we don't say that, but like, that's what I think. So, and what do people do? Well, 83% of people choose their favorite charity. So this again shows, even though there are some individual differences, some people do care a lot about effectiveness, but on average, most people, they care much more about their favorite charity, even though they know that the other charity is much more effective. So now in the experimental conditions, so a separate group of participants, we just introduce a third donation option. This is just, you can split it 50-50 between these two charities. And what happens? So people have three options, you know, give exclusively to their favorite charity, exclusively to the effective, or they split it 50-50. And more than half of participants choose that splitting option or the donation bundling option. And as a result of so many people choosing the bundle option, we observe a 76% boost in the total amount that goes to effective charities. So it's really a huge effect. It's not just a small thing. It's really a big thing. Well, why does it work so well? Why do so many people choose this bundle option? The reason is that it strikes a good balance between these two competing motivations. And crucially, the, the preference to give to your favorite charity is scope insensitive with regard to the amount that you give. So if you give $50 to your favorite charity, you feel really good. You get warm glow. But if you give $100 to your favorite charity, you don't feel twice as good. It feels almost equally good. You don't really notice a big difference. Therefore, what you should do is just give half to your favorite charity. You almost max out on your warm glow anyway, but then this leaves room to give the other half to this highly effective charity and thereby you can satisfy this second preference 
preference to give effectively as well to sufficient extent. And then we see that in our studies, we find that overall people actually feel equally or even more satisfied overall about their donation when they split it because they satisfy both of these preferences compared to had they only given exclusively to their favorite charity. So this is the bundling technique and it works really well in our studies, in our sort of controlled experimental settings. But then we were wondering, okay, the whole point of this project is to actually have a real world impact. We don't just want to write yet another paper. We want to actually encourage people to give more effectively in the real world. So we wanted to see if it works in the real world. And to do that, we created a donation platform, givingmultiplier.org. And it was created by a friend of mine, a web developer, Fabio Kuhn. The website is publicly available, like anyone in the world could go and use it, including the listeners if they'd like to. And I'll quickly explain how it works. So you go to this website and first you select your favorite charity. It can be any charity you choose out of millions of charities. Then we show you a list of nine highly effective expert recommended charities. So these are charities that typically focus on global health or on animal welfare or biosecurity, like research against future pandemics. And there's some information about these charities and you find links to the sort of effectiveness evaluation reports and so on. So you, so you then choose one out of these nine effective charities. And then you can tell us how much you want to donate, let's say $100. And finally, you can choose how to divide your donation between these two charities. So you can do a 50-50 split, you can do an 80-20, 20-80, anything you want. And now the reason why it's called giving multiplier is because we match your donations. So we add on top of your donation for free to both of your donations, and we match more with a higher matching rate, the more you give in proportion to the effective charity, which is a second technique to encourage more effective giving. Okay, so this is the website, this is how it works. And we we put it out there, that was about three years ago, and we had no idea if anyone would ever use it, right? Because the, the hope was that people, it's not just participants like on MTurk or so, but we wanted to have real people use their you know actual credit card to make a real donation. And we had no idea if it works. So, and we didn't use any paid ads. We just put it out there and we spread the word on social media. We asked some of our colleagues to tweet about it. And then it was covered in some media articles also. And then Josh Green went onto some podcasts. It turns out that it worked really well. So we received thousands of donations. And now we have more than two and a half million dollars that were donated through this website. And all of this goes to charities. I think it's about 65% of this amount goes to the nine highly effective charities. So on average, people give more than half to effective charities. And the rest goes to a wide range of different charities that people have selected as their favorite charity. So we were really positively surprised and we're really happy about it. Yeah, and we keep the website running. So the academic project is, is completed and we published a paper. The paper is called Boosting the Impact of Effective Giving. And the website is still online. And in fact, we've created this invite code called personality. So listeners of this podcast, if they want to make a donation, they can on the website, enter the code personality in this field called invite code, or they can also go to givingmultiplier.org slash personality. And then if you do that, you get a higher matching rate. So yeah, that, that's giving multiplier. Thank you so much. That is really exciting. Where did you find the funding for your the matching amount that you provide? Yeah, that's a really good question. Okay, so this is another technique, which we, we call this micro-matching. And the idea is that we don't have a single angel investor, like, you know, a big funder who provides all the matching. Instead, all the, of the matching funds are provided democratically by all the donors or by donors themselves. So if you go to the website, you can make a normal donation, as I explained it before, or you can actually become a matching funder yourself. So there's a link somewhere that says, you know, donate into the matching fund. And then some donors are willing to donate all of their donation or a part. So what you can also do is you can do a split donation and then 
after you made your donation, we ask you, would you be willing to donate the part that you have allocated to the effective charity instead into the matching pool? And we explain why this could actually have a higher impact because if you become a matching funder, you provide the funds that then we can use to incentivize multiple future donors to give more effectively counterfactually. So only thanks to the matching funders, the whole system works, right? And therefore, if you want to have a big impact, it may be strategically even wiser for you to become a matching funder. So we have a good balance between, you know, people who just give directly to the charities or and people who give partly or fully into the matching fund. And the system so far has been self-sustaining, which means, you know, we, we've never needed external funding to keep it going. And we hope that that it keeps going, but this only works if, you know, a sufficient, I think it's about a third of donors who are willing to give part or, or all of their money into the matching fund. And you know, we're really grateful that there's so many people who are willing to do that. That is really exciting. And also to see how your research has been implemented into this really big project that people can use now and have been using. That is really, really exciting. Thank you so much. And thanks for the personality invite. Yeah. Yes, thank Absolutely. you. All right, let's talk about animals. Something else that you study is how we as humans perceive and value animals. Can you tell me more about where that global research is headed and what you have found in your own studies? Yes, I'd love to tell you more about this line of research. So in this other line of research, I'm interested in understanding how people think about animals and how they perceive animals, in particular from a moral point of view. And I'm interested in this topic because there are so many animals <laughs> and many of them live, live miserable lives. And if our goal is to do the most good, then, you know, an interesting question is, uh, who? It, just humans? Uh, what about animals? But perhaps one of the most effective ways to, you know, improve as many lives as much as possible is by helping animals. You know, we have a really paradoxical relationship with animals because we, some animals we treat really well, you know, they're our pets, they're our family members, we give them a name, we go to the doctor when they're sick, but then other animals we treat really badly, you know, some which is used for human consumption, some we, we eat, some we wear, some we use for entertainment, for, for industrial equipment. Some animals we see as pests and we want to eradicate them, right? So it's strange. And there's this concept from philosophy that has inspired my work, and it's called speciesism. It's a bit of a tongue twister, but the idea is that we discriminate individuals based on their species membership. You know, we think that humans are just the most valuable species. Why? Well, just because we're humans. And we think that some animals, such as dogs, are more valuable than other, than other animals, such as pigs. Why? Well, just because they're, they belong to a different species. And then some philosophers, such as Peter Singer, have argued that speciesism is wrong. It's morally not justifiable for the same reasons as why racism and sexism are not justifiable. Now, I'm not a philosopher, but my work is inspired by philosophy, and I'm researching from a descriptive empirical perspective whether speciesism is true. Is it true that people discriminate individuals on their species membership? And if so, why? Why do we value humans so much more than animals? And where does this tendency come from? It's like, I mean, it seems like a universal tendency that humans had have had throughout history and have across culture and so on. It's a really, really strong phenomenon. And I'm interested in understanding speciesism, understanding how it affects our moral thinking and our behavior. Yeah, I can tell you a bit more about some of the uh, the research findings if you want. Okay, you're nodding. So the, the first step to transition speciesism from philosophy into psychology that we took is to measure speciesism. So we developed a speciesism scale. So uh, and this scale just measures, you know, like to what extent do you think that morally animals always count for less than humans? You know, do you think that humans sh should be allowed to use animals however they want? Stuff like that. 
And what we find is that speciesism really is this psychological construct and attitude that is unique. It, there are wide individual differences. Some people are much more speciesist than others. They, it predicts behavior, like, you know, donation behavior or like food choice, you know, would it, would, whether you choose a meat snack or a vegetarian snack, that kind of stuff. It predicts these, these behaviors above and beyond other constructs of pro-sociality and prejudice, such as empathy or social dominance orientation and so on. But it does correlate with other forms of prejudice like racism, sexism, or social dominance orientation. So, okay, this is speciesism. Well, now, okay, you might wonder, is it really speciesism? Is it really species membership per se that explains why people value humans more than animals? Could it be something else? So, for example, anecdotally, people often say something like, well, it's it, the reason humans are more valuable than animals is because we are more intelligent, because we have sophisticated language, because we make complex plans for the future, this kind of stuff. Well, there's a way to test this, and we tested this in many studies. And one way to test this is to come up with these hypothetical thought experiments where you have human beings who actually are less intelligent than animals. So, for example, you know, imagine a case of a human who is severely cognitively impaired and it doesn't really have sophisticated language and is not doesn't have sophisticated mental capacities. You know, you contrast it, let's say, to a very sophisticated chimpanzee who can even have rudimentary communication skills with humans. And even in such situations, clearly it's the case that the vast majority of people would still prioritize the human over the animal, even though they all agree that the human is less intelligence. And it actually, even in very extreme cases where you have, let's say, humans with who are in a persistent a vegetative state, they are brain dead, right? And they don't really have any capacities anymore, cognitive capacity. When, and there's not even, there's no sentience going on. It's just that they're, they're still alive. Their bodies are still alive. Contrasted to like, you know, animals that are, have very high sensitivity for pain. Even then people attribute stronger protection against harm and and for life you know or against death to the humans than to animals so what this shows is that even though i should say it's complicated and there are multiple factors by far the most important factor that explains why humans value humans more than animals is just species membership so it really supports this hypothesis that philosophers have had for decades and have discussed that speciesism exists perhaps at this point you may wonder where does speciesism come from you know, it, it seems universal. And is this something we're born with? Or is it something that we acquire socially somehow? I think we don't know the answer yet. And I find this a really exciting question to explore more. But we have some recent evidence that I find really interesting. And it, this recent evidence shows that speciesism may emerge relatively late in development. So we did this study with where we compared children and adults and sort of investigated their speciesism level. And this is a project I did together with Matty Wilkes, Paul Bloom and Guy Kahan. Let me explain the study. It's, it's actually super straightforward. So we just presented participants with these moral dilemmas. And the children, they were between the ages of six and nine, and then adults. The moral dilemmas are really simple. We just asked them, who would you save if you can only save one out of these two groups, a human or a dog? Adults always go for the human. Children are actually quite divided. So a third saves the human, a third saves the dog, and a third says, I can't decide. And then we ask, okay, two dogs versus one human. And what happens? Adults all go for the human. Children, the majority of children save the two dogs. So they're really quite anti-speciesist with respect to dogs uh, compared to humans. And then 10 dogs versus one human or 100 dogs versus one human, it's even more extreme. So children, the majority save the dogs. Adults always save the human. Then we replace the dogs with pigs. So, you know, human versus pig, a human versus two pigs and so on. Here, children are a little bit more speciesist. So I think they, on average, would save one human over two pigs. 
but they would save 10 pigs or one human and 100 pigs or one human. So what does this tell us? It doesn't tell us for sure that speciesism is not innate or that it's only socially acquired. It just tells us that it emerges late in development and we don't know why. It could also just be a natural thing that whenever children get older, they become speciesist. So we have to do more research. We are doing follow-up research and colleagues of us do follow-up research too and other people too. And if I had to guess, so if I had to speculate what's going on right now, I would I would say that probably things are complicated. There may be some weaker manifestations of speciesism that we're born with, similar to other forms of in-group favoritism which is very natural to humans. But I think that there's maybe this very strong form of speciesism, which is, it's really extreme, right? Like it's not that we just think humans are a bit more valuable than animals. We are all convinced of this view that humans are in an absolute sense, much absolutely more valuable, you know, and that we're so much more valuable that we are allowed to, that it's permitted for us to exploit animals on a massive scale, right? We kill billions of animals each year on a massive scale for very mild benefits. And this very extreme form of species, maybe this is to some extent culturally acquired. You know, maybe teenagers at some point learn about the norms around, you know, meat production and so on. And they learn, well, this is just how we do it, you know, like, and 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 this could also explain why there are cultural differences, right? Like, you know, in India, people think cows are holy and they don't eat them. And then maybe in China, some people eat cats and dogs and we would never do that. So there are these cultural differences. And maybe that also points towards the view that at least some aspects of speciesism are culturally influenced. But we don't really know and we need much more research. Is there research that where you've combined effective altruism with our views on animals? Like, is there a way that we could be most like effective altruistic towards animals? And what does that look like? Yeah, it's a really good question. So from a philosophical point of view, there's clearly a connection, right? Because, well, the reason I'm interested in animals is because, as I mentioned earlier, maybe the best way to help and to do the most good is by helping animals. And we do have some studies where we look at, do people give to charities that help animals or do people give to charities that help humans? What if the animal charities are much more effective and speciesism indeed predicts? So speciesism can be an obstacle to doing the most good if you think that animals should also be included in our circle of moral concern. Yes, so that, that's one connection. Cool, thank you so much. Where would you like to go with your altruism research in the future? What are open questions that you still, and we've tapped into this a little bit, but. I am interested in doing follow-up research on the developmental aspect of speciesism, as I mentioned before, but I also have another line of research. And this uh, new line of research, I'm interested in studying how people think about the future of humanity. So it's a very grandiose question. And in particular, I'm interested in people's moral attitudes towards future generations. But I'm also interested in how people think about global catastrophic risks. So these are risks that could cause huge catastrophes that could harm or kill billions of people, potentially even lead to human extinction, which would be the end of humanity forever. The reason I'm interested in this is because, well, I think it's important, of course, and I also think it's interesting psychologically because these are risks that may be very unlikely and very uncertain, and humans are not good at dealing with such risks. Also, these are risks that are very novel, they're unprecedented. So maybe I should say a bit more about what such global catastrophic risks could be. So these could be risks that could be caused through the misuse, for example, through the misuse of advanced technology, either accidental or intentional, such as nuclear weapons, 
or you know engineered pathogens like you know viruses that are artificially created or misaligned artificial intelligence or perhaps modern technologies that don't even exist yet and we can't even conceive of but the idea is that our human psychology is not really equipped to deal responsibly with these extremely powerful technology you know this is not what our psychology you know is ad adapted for and now we have these extremely powerful technologies that could of course some of these technologies could be used for for, for very good things but but they could also be misused and it could be really really dangerous so what we're studying together in my lab um, together with my colleagues is what psychological tendencies or what biases do humans have that could prevent us from taking such risks seriously, or even tendencies that could actively cause such risks. So I mentioned before that some of these risks, they may be very unlikely. Maybe, we don't know, they're very uncertain. But the thing is that even if they're very unlikely, because the stakes are so large, we should still take them very seriously. So for example, you know, imagine you're in an airplane and you think there's a 5% chance that this airplane could crash. Well, even though it's only 5%, you should still, it should be an absolute priority to minimize that risk. We we should invest a lot of resources to minimize that risk. In fact, we just published a preprint of, an, of a survey we did. We found that people think, so, um, so we asked them, how likely do you think it is that humanity could go extinct through a catastrophe this century? And the median response is 5%. So the, <laughs> these are US participants and Chinese participants. We find roughly the same findings in these two studies. I mean, I find this is just really disturbingly high and, and kind of shocking. And really, if there's a 5% chance that everyone, you and everyone you love, all your family, all your friends, every human being, you know, everything would end, all human projects, all our culture, everything would end, there's a 5% chance. Well, then we should just really make this a global priority to reduce these risks. And indeed, people think reducing risks that could cause human extinction should be a global priority and that governments should invest much more to reduce the likelihood of such events. So this is a new topic I'm interested in, and we have lots of ongoing projects. And who knows, maybe in a few years, we can have another podcast and then we, we know more. But right now, uh, we're still exploring. Thank you so much. This is my last question. And listeners might not notice, but you and I were classmates in high school, thus also our Swiss accent. And so when looking back, not until high school, but from being a student to being where you are now, who were the people that have influenced your career the most? And so who are those special mentors and, and how did they influence you? It's true. Yeah, we went to high school together. It's so funny. Yeah, that was many, many years ago. But it was only for one year because after one year, I got bored of high school and I didn't want to learn Latin anymore. And I became a computer programmer, a software developer. And I, I, uh, I think I learned a lot through that. And then at some point I decided, okay, now that I know how machines work, I want to know how humans work. <laughs> I, so I decided to study psychology. I'm exaggerating a bit, but yeah, this is how we got to know each other at high school. Yeah. And then I think there were really lots of different people who have influenced you know, my thinking and, and had a positive impact on my career. I don't even know where to begin. I would say uh, certainly my supervisor. So Nadira Faber, she is my PhD supervisor. She was just really helpful and supportive. And she really taught me how to do research you know she taught me everything from like designing and conducting rigorous experiments to the publication process everything i really uh, learned so much from her and owe her a lot and then josh green my postdoc supervisor he he had a big influence on me even before i met him because he has been my intellectual idol for many years and i've read his book called moral tribes so he is 
this psychologist who, who popularized the trolley problem, right? So this moral dilemma and, and the book Moral Tribes discusses his research. And then also I just learned from him how to do really, you know, research that is practically impactful, like the Giving Multiplier Project. And I'm st I continue to work with both of my supervisors. And then I think another important aspect in my career is that I always work interdisciplinary. All of the research that we discussed is inspired by philosophy. I had the privilege since since the very beginning, since the very first project I did, to work very closely together with world-leading philosophers. So in particular, Julian Savulescu and Guy Kahan, and also many others, and, and their professors at Oxford. Julian actually was also a co-supervisor during my PhD. And I just, I learned so much from them, of course, about just philosophical ideas, but also about their way of thinking and their methodology. In particular, this very analytical rigorous way of reasoning. And I think I would be a different researcher and a different person had I not worked so closely with these philosophers. So I think what I can recommend to everyone is that if your work has some interdisciplinary component, that you work closely, that you you know include as collaborators, researchers from this other discipline, because you will learn a lot. And you can also ensure that your research is really rigorous, not just from your psychological perspective, but from this perspective of this other field as well. So I think these are some of the most important influences on my career. Thank you so much, Lucius. I thought this was super interesting and I hope our listeners agree and also give generously to your website. So please make a donation at givingmultiply.org slash personality. And thank you so much, Lucius, for coming to this episode and talking about your interesting research. Thanks so much, Rebecca.